Dr. Jean Hovey was raised in Oakland, California. She worked a number of jobs before veterinary school, including working as a sheriff's deputy while taking her prerequisite courses. She got her DVM from Colorado State University in 1994. She was introduced to holistic medicine by visiting speakers while in veterinary school and even took a short course in homeopathy while still a student. After graduation, she started practicing in a feline-only integrative medicine practice. After working in a number of practices, she started the Little Big Cat website with Jackson Galaxy. She has continued to teach, write, and consult since then. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jean Hovey as we talk about attending veterinary school as an older student, finding holistic medicine, serving as an advisor to AFCO, consulting, formulating, and selling flower essences, and working with Jackson Galaxy. Hey there, just a quick programming note. We're not going to publish a podcast episode on January 1st, but we'll be back on January 15th with a brand new episode. See you then. Dr. Hovey, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome. It's good to see you. So where did you grow up? Oakland, California. And despite everything, I am still a Raider fan. (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. So um, when did you decide that you wanted to be a veterinarian? When I was about three. But um, I grew up in the 50s and a little girl had three choices, nurse, secretary or teacher. So um, my parents did not encourage that idea at all. In fact, actively discouraged me so thoroughly that um, it. I was in my late 30s before it even occurred to me to go to vet school. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was a secretary, a paralegal, and a deputy sheriff. So I've been through more careers than you can shake a stick at. Oh my gosh. But, but finally I, I got the Colorado state university catalog for my roommate. And when he was done looking at it, um, he, he gave it to me and I'm thumbing through and I see professional veterinary medical program. And I thought, dang, if only I'd done that 20 years ago. And then I read it and I read the requirements. I thought I could do this now. And, Probably Bob could see the light go on over my head. Um, And within three days, I was registered for classes and I started my prerequisites because my science was too old. I had to take everything over again. But I started the next Monday um, in in pre-vet. How long did it take you to get to knock back the prereqs then? Two years. Where were you living at the time? Um, Boulder, Colorado. Oh, all right. I had, I, I had come out here, um, you know, to go to college and I kind of never left. Um, a lot of people get to Colorado and don't intend to stay, but they don't leave. And I'm one of those. Uh (laughs) There's something we have here called Niwot's curse and Niwot was an Arapaho chief. And the the myth is that he cursed the white people that if we left, we could try, but we'd always come back. And that's certainly been true for me. I, I've moved away a couple of times, but it didn't stick and I came right back. <laughs> so when you were doing your prereqs, what kind of job were you working? 
I was a deputy sheriff at that time, and I was on graveyard shift, so I could take classes during the day. And after a year, year and a half of that, um, I quit to go to school full time. It just worked out. Yeah. So when it was time to apply to to vet school, was it Colorado State? That was it. Yeah. Yeah. And- well, I had residents, and it turned out that if you weren't a resident, it was one hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year tuition. So uh, I I didn't have any desire to go anywhere else. Yeah. And you got in on the first try. I did. And I got in without an interview. And it was just, you know how when you get in the flow, the doors open, everything just gets smooth. And really, it was it was so it seemed almost preordained. It just was so easy and everything lined up. And, you know, it was the right thing at the right time. And the universe was completely supportive of that. That's, that's amazing. So how old were you when you got in, when you started vet school then? 36. All right. So you were probably, were you one of the oldest in your class then or? I was not, there were two people older than me and there were a whole bunch of us in our thirties. The oldest student started when she was 52. So, um, you know, it was, I think those of us who were in our 30s or 40s or 50s got in without an interview, got in without problems, because if you're applying to vet school and you're not going to graduate till you're 40-something, they know you're serious. Yeah. And you're not just doing this on a whim and you're not just dinking around. You're going to stick with the program. And um, and the only one of us who didn't make it through the program was called up in the Army Reserves because of the Iraq War, some dang war, whichever one it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he he ended up being a year behind us because he had to go um, do his National Guard thing. Got it. So did you enjoy school? No. Yeah. I love school. I love learning. Vet school was awful. It was really, really hard. I. I don't think even I just don't think I was prepared for the for the intense competition and the um here's the thing being an older student mm-hmm. you know when you see crap you know to call it crap and there was so much of it and my meter was going boing 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 and they really didn't like our class very much. They were trying a new system. Uh, we had a bunch of older students, and we were like, uh, you climb that hill. If I was 18, I'd say, sure. Yeah. Now, that, then they say, climb that hill. And I say, why? And they did not like being questioned. Yeah. So it, it, was, it was more difficult than it had to be. And it was physically demanding. I mean, I had been in a physical job. Yeah, and I, and I concluded if I could wrestle drunks at three a.m. that vet school should be easy peasy. But it was it was very physically taxing, and um, by the time I graduated, I'd like to say that my brain was full. So now, yeah. if I learn something new, an old fact has to fall out. Right. So you know, but I love learning. It was just the the way they taught it was just didn't 
it wasn't real compatible with the way my brain worked. Understood. Did you have an idea when you started school, what kind of medicine you wanted to practice? Actually, by the time I got to vet school, I knew I wanted to teach. Ah. And, and I wasn't all that excited about being a vet, but you know, you go through the program and you don't have a lot of ideas, <laughs> you know, and I, in my junior year, I got wrecked by uh, learning about alternative medicine. And once I once I learned that, it's like, oh, that's what I want to do. And I especially wanted to practice with cats. I'm a real cat person. Love dogs. Love my dogs dearly. But um, I have a, a simpatico with cats that's just on a very deep level. I get cats. And a lot of vets don't. Yeah. Who? Uh, how did you get? How did you get exposure to alternative medicine in school? Dr. Christina Chambro. Ah. Um, we had a we had a couple students in the zoo medicine club, which I was a member, and um, they brought in four veterinarians to talk about holistic medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, one was one was. Dr. Linda East, who I ended up going to work for after school. Uh-huh. Uh, one was Dr. Jim Fascinelli, Dr. David Fong, and Dr. Christina Chambro. Now, Christina was going to teach a weekend homeopathy course. Mm-hmm. So this was like, um, you know, does anybody want to take that? Well, four of the ladies from my class took that class. And yeah. three of us are still practicing holistic medicine. So um, it just, it was such a total mind bending thing. I mean, what she said about nutrition and, and like cures, like, I mean, everything made so much sense. So it made senior year really hard because now I'm really marching to a different drummer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had a sheet that, you know, the students go in and do the intake and um, you know, and there's all kinds of questions on the intake. Nutrition was not one of them. What are you feeding your dog was not something we even considered asking. And I started asking it and everybody's like, shut up. (laughs) This isn't on the list, but, um, but I learned pretty quickly, you know, the importance of that. Yeah. So graduation came. What did you do after you graduated? Um, well, I I moved to Denver and went to work in in Doctor East's cat clinic. Yeah. So it was holistic and well integrative. Really, it was integrative because mm-hmm. we did medicine and surgery. But you know, then I always would think, well, is there a homeopathic remedy that goes with this, or is there? Um, a flower essence. Can I make a flower essence that will help this animal? Or are there supplements that will help help this cat? And um, it was amazing because I could I could. Uh, Christina calls it her painter's palette, mm-hmm. like regular medicine. You have black and white. You have drugs and surgery. That's pretty much it. Yeah, but you learn homeopathy, you learn flower essences, you learn Reiki, you learn um, all the clinical nutrition, all these other colors, and you can really 
um, create a masterpiece because you have so much to work with. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, it, it continues to blow my mind. Um, what regular medicine does differently than what, um, than what we do because they're still painting with black and white. Yeah. You know, they haven't, you know, well, some, some of them have a few shades of gray with acupuncture or something, but we have this opportunity to, to paint a masterpiece and to really create an individual solution for every animal and not just shotgun the same dang thing. Oh, has an ear infection. Oh, you give, you know, this antibiotic. Well, yeah, but why? Why do they have the ear, ear infection? And you start looking at the whole animal, which is what holistic is. And, um, you know, regular vets say they're holistic. They look at the whole animal, but that, yeah, they do. They do a cursory exam and then they look, then they focus on the ear to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah. Well, that's not how it works. You know, you have to address nutrition. You have to address, you know, the, the environment, the lifestyle. Is this a, you know, is this a dog that swims in, in the cow pond? You know, well, that's going to be a different, different thing that you're going to do to treat that ear infection than just one, you know, the one thing that you have in your cupboard. Uh, so it's a, uh, I really love this, this way of being. That must've been wonderful to have a mentor like that. In your, oh, in that gosh, practice. Yeah. yeah. I, Dr. East was great. Dr. Fasanelli was great. Um, I, you know, I, I had a whole group of people that I could call upon, you know, I went to my first AHVMA meeting. Um, I was, in 1993 so i was still a junior um i graduated in 94 yeah. so uh so i met all kinds of great people and you know i met rob silver who is you know mm -hmm. a neighbor yeah and we had a little group here um a, a denver group of vets there were I, there were quite a few of us and we'd meet once a month for lunch and um, so I had a built-in support network and not just one person. I had a whole group that I could pick their brains and, and everybody was always great and happy to help. And that's what we have in the holistic world that I, I think is harder to find in conventional medicine, which is, you know, a, a lot of support for each other and, and different suggestions and, um, you know, it's not just, we'll try a different antibiotic. It's like, well, no, did you, you know, maybe, maybe you need to give more antioxidants because this is an inflammatory condition. And this is how you knock it down from the inside out is with nutritional support or with a, some other modality. So it's uh, so cool <laughs> to practice holistically. Oh yeah. And that must've been really good to have that monthly meeting with that group. Oh yeah, we had so much fun too. It was just really terrific. We had it was a really great group, and then people started moving away, and including me. Eventually, I moved to California for a couple of years. That was all I could take of California. Even though I'm from there, I 
realized I didn't want to live there. And so, um, so uh, good old Chief Niwat, I, I came back, you know, mm-hmm. and and I, I actually didn't practice clinical practice for all that many years because um, not too far down the road, I developed congestive heart failure and I could no longer um, physically keep up with the demands of a clinic, even a cat practice that was too much physically for me. So yeah. I turned to writing and teaching and that's what I mostly do now. So, um, and I love it. It's great. Do you think uh, your time prior to vet school kind of prepared you for the writing part? It was something you always enjoyed. I always loved writing. Yeah. Yeah. But when you get the letters DVM after your name, now you also have credibility. So I started writing for Whole Cat Journal. Then I wrote for the Whole Dog Journal. Then for Cats Magazine. And, you know, I've been writing all kinds of articles for now. I think my first published article was 1997. And, uh, you know, now I have two print books and a bunch of ebooks. And, you know, and I just, I love to teach and teaching through writing through my website and everything. That's, I, I can help so many more animals than I ever could working in a practice where you see them one by one. Sure. Uh, So that has been terrific. So what was it like uh, getting books published? When, when did your first one come out roughly? Oh gosh, 2010, I think. Um, Holistic cat care. Mm -hmm. My writing partner, uh, Dr. Celeste Jarnell, and she's a, PhD nutritionist, but unfortunately she passed away a few years ago, but we did holistic cat care and then we did uh, paleo dog. And I, I was recruited to write paleo dog, but I'll tell you when you compare self-publishing on, on Kindle or for, you know, or Barnes and Noble or any of the e-reader kind of books, and you can also print your own paperback books. I hated working with publishers. Yeah. They're just awful. And I will never do it again um, because I can get so much farther, so much faster if I do it myself. Yeah. So do you, yeah. do you work with an editor now when you're writing? I have, I, I do have a good editor, Dr. Um, Sally Bonner, who ran that was the chief editor at the whole cat journal mm-hmm. for the years that I wrote for them. And we're still friends. So, uh, you know, if I need an editor, I, I call Sally and I say, I am, because I am not a good proofreader. I really am not that great at that. So um, it's really nice to have fresh eyes on it. And then I have other contacts that'll read through it and say, well, yeah, but uh, did you think of this? Or did you think of that? Or I think you've got the right, wrong take on this. You know, I have people in, in, uh, in especially in nutrition and uh, you know, I'm an advisor to AFCO and have yeah. been since 1999. And so I, you know, I have a lot of contacts there that I can say, Oh, now what is this about? Um, what's the rule about this now? And so one of the things I write for in particular is about the pet food industry mm-hmm. and how um, I don't want to say, anything like corrupt because i don't believe 
they are, but I do believe they're very self-interested. And if if you're a corporation in the United States, your number one duty is to take care of your shareholders. Yeah. So when a big food manufacturer said, your dog is our number one concern, well, I'm sorry, but you're breaking federal law if that is true. So I try to educate people what what does AFCO do? What are the rules? What, you know, what are the myths? What do people, what do they say that people believe that is, you know, that's really going to get you in trouble down the road? So, you know, I really emphasize in my writings, I do a lot with nutrition and, um, and, and quite a bit on holistic medicine too. How did you get the AFCO, it, AFCO spot? Oh, yeah, that's funny. Because when Linda Linda East sold the clinic, mm-hmm. and at the same time I got a job offer because I knew Dr. Michael Fox, mm-hmm. um, and we had we had done some writing together. His daughter was working at the Animal Protection Institute in Sacramento, and they the gal that that had the position that I moved into, she was leaving, and they said, "Hey, you want to come and work?" with us. And so um, they already had us, they had negotiated a spot um, on, on the AFCO advisory board for the pet food committee and the ingredients definition, ingredient definitions committee. And uh, so I just moved into that. I, you know, we wrote AFCO a nice letter and say, said, well, Tina's leaving and Dr. Jean's coming and can she have that spot? And they were like, sure. Um, so I started going to the meetings and it's really a wonderful group of people. And, you know, there's a lot of myths about AFCO and one is that they're a puppet of the pet food industry and really nothing could be further from the truth. However, they were influenced by the pet food industry. Nobody is a voting member except a regulatory official, USDA, Colorado Department of Agriculture, you have to be a regulator to have a vote. Mm. But, you know, you go, you want to have some influence, you know, after the meeting, you go have a beer with a couple of the guys and you bend their ear. And so, you know, there's a lot of lobbying that happens. But once consumers had a a chair at the table, um, they were really, really receptive and they've been nothing but good to me for the 20 years I've been involved with them. They're, they, they're really wonderful people. And I, I have some, what I would consider good friendships with them, but if they're doing something or if they're considering something that I think is anti-consumer or harmful to animals, I say so. And, uh, and they're mostly receptive to that. Um, there was one issue that came up, which was there have been a number of studies that found that if you analyze different dog foods, that um, what's in the food in terms of DNA is not what's on the label. And 40% of foods, there were unlabeled proteins on the label. So if you're feeding your dog, um, you know, a venison and rice pet food, chances are really good that it's not just venison in there. Mm -hmm. So if your dog has a chicken allergy and you pick venison and rice, 
and your dog does not respond well to the diet, well, it doesn't mean that he's allergic to venison. It means that there's probably chicken in the food and it's continuing to cause an allergic reaction. So I gave a presentation about that and I casually suggested that maybe the industry clean up its act. And uh, I never got booed off a stage before, but that's what happened. So, you know, you have to, yeah. I mean, they, there's some really entrenched beliefs and, and uh, entrenched positions there that, you know, uh, now we have several consumer groups that come. And I think that's really, really important because we hold their feet to the fire and this, we can tell them, you know, we're going to hold you accountable. If you pass, you know, if you, if you decide to take some very crummy ingredient, like some kind of byproduct that, you know, really isn't that great of an ingredient. And then you want to call it, um, golden, perfect, wonderful chicken product. Well, that's not consumer friendly. That's just trying to um, put lipstick on a pig. And so we really don't let them do that. And it's, it's, uh, it's really a worthwhile thing to keep up with that. And because if consumers don't have a seat at the table, then the only voices that, that the regulators hear are from industry and, you know, we don't want to let that happen. It's, it's, um, it's not right for, for any animal, you know, they regulate livestock feed and all that too. But Mm -hmm. of course we have, you know, we want pet food to be truthful uh, on the label. And, you know, the only way we can do that is by continuing to hold them responsible and give the consumer perspective as well as what they're hearing from the industry. So it's really an important uh, work that I think we're doing. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I know you've <clears throat> consulted with some larger companies. What's it, what's it been like to do that? Well, it's been very interesting. And the, the thing that I find the most interesting is when I was helping to formulate a food. Now, I'm not a nutritionist and I don't have the $5,000 computer program to do that. Um, so we had a formulator also. And when we were working on this dog food, I would say, um, can we put a little filet mignon in there? And of course they would say, no, not cost-effective. So then I would say, well, can we kick up the omega-3 fatty acids by half a percent? And, and the formulator wonderful guy and still a friend, um, he would he would show me what that did in the formula and it would be an 11 page tiny font excel spreadsheet and one little change would cascade through all of this stuff and change everything it was really interesting and and they would say well then no but also there's palatability issue that goes with that there's you know, I'm I'm the pie in the sky person. I would love to make a dog food with filet mignon and organic carrots and you know all these wonderful ingredients. And then it's their job to say uh, no, 
let's see. No, what what we can get, you know, we can get this or this, and then I'd say, okay, fine, use that one, you know, Uh and uh, you know, just the the production requirements. You know, you can't add more meat because then the machines don't work, or you know, or that one ingredient. You know, I want to add. Come on, let's let's put some mushrooms. Can we put some reishi mushrooms in it? And they would say, yeah, sure, except for they're, you know, a thousand dollars a kilogram and not gonna happen, you know. So it's uh learning the intricacies and the realities of how pet food is made, you know. I mean, I still learn, I've been going to AFCO meetings since 1999, and every time I go, I learn something new you know, some nuance of the, of the, in the book that I didn't know before, like there's a definition for meat and meat can only come from cows, pigs, goats, or sheep. So if it says meat byproducts, it is not coming from circus elephants. It is not coming from roadkill. It has to be from those four species. However, mm-hmm. if it's a rendered product, it can be any species. Ah. So you want to have a named species in the food because if it is called chicken meal, it has to be chicken meal. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's meat and bone meal, which is a one ingredient, it's not meat meal plus bone meal, it's meat and bone meal, that can technically be roadkill and dead circus elephants and police horses that got shot in the line of duty or whatever. Um, and all of those are documented to have gone into pet food way back in the in the olden days. And mm-hmm. I, but I think the industry has cleaned up its act because of the scrutiny that and the pressure that we've been putting on them. And I think uh, that things are better in pet food now than they uh, than they were when we got started. Good. Hey, so what about the other side? I know that you started an essence company. What was it like oh, to yes. what was it like to formulate products and and put them out on the market? That was so interesting. That was one of those four o'clock in the morning, sit up in bed going, oh, I could make flower essence formulas, and you know, and uh, and it would be not just for the cats in my clinic, it could be for all kinds of cats, and that was that was really fun. It was a fun exercise, but it. After a couple of years, um, it kind of lost its charm. And when I'd get an order, then I'd get kind of annoyed because then it meant that I had to do all this work Mm -hmm. to make it and package it and send it and invoice it and all this other stuff. And that was in, that's, I started that in 1995. So there was very little in the way of internet uh, at that time. Yeah. So I I gave it up, and then when I met Jackson Galaxy, who has that um, Animal Planet program, My Cat from Hell, mm-hmm. and we started we started Little Big Cat, which is our mind body consulting for cats, is how we started out, and we were trying to figure out, well, you know, we we both don't have a job right now, so maybe we should figure out a way to make money, and I said, well, I do have this essence company. Um, Spirit Essences, which was named after my cat Spirit, who lived to be 20 and a half. 
Wow. So I think I think essences and you know learning about nutrition really helped her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said we have I have this essence thing, and if you want to do all the work, we can revive it. And we yeah. did, and he he did all the work. Bless his little art, and um, you know eventually when he moved to California to be you know a big star, and. <laughs> So, but, you know, I still work with him and, uh, you know, because there's questions about the products and stuff, if, if they need anything, or if they say, well, would this essence or that essence be better in a formula to, to do this, you know, he's, he's really advanced in his intuitive sense. So he create, he can create formulas now, Mm -hmm. but all the basic formulas are ones that, that I made in 1995, you know, so. How did you, uh, how did you two meet? We met at, uh, at a friend's house for a while. We had in this, in the Denver Boulder area, we had an animal gathering. So anybody who worked with animals. So we had, you know, dog trainers, we had doggy daycare owners. We had, um, anybody who worked with animals, a uh, couple animal communicators, some animal massage therapists, and we had these monthly gatherings. And this particular one was at my friend Kate Celisti's house. She's an animal communicator. And now I had just moved back to Boulder um, about six months before. And all I heard from everybody was, oh, you have to meet Jackson Galaxy you have to meet him. And I'm like, Jackson galaxy, seriously? No. (laughs) And then, but we both showed up to this meeting and, you know, people apparently since I moved back, all he'd been hearing is you have to meet Dr. Hovey. You have to meet her. And so we finally, we finally got together face to face and, uh, and sometimes, you know, how the universe puts words in your mouth. I, the first thing I said was, ah, okay. I've heard a lot about you. And then I said, and we have important work to do together. I was uh-huh. like, why'd I say that? I mean, it's a six foot something guy tattooed from head to foot. And I was like, not really my cup of tea, but you know, then I got, we, it just worked. It was, you know, again, the universe shoving us into the middle of the stream where we could flow. And uh, it was, it was brilliant. And, uh, you know, I love him to death. I consider him the baby brother I never had, you know, and uh, it's, you know, he is such a great cat guy and I'm a great cat person, you know, lover. And, you know, just, it was a match made in heaven or whatever you conceive of that special place where good things go on. Um, You know, it was just, it was meant to be, and it was fabulous. And we started this, we started little big cat and, uh, and I was taking a course in marketing. And so we were able, I had a coach, we were able to actually, you know, create a website, that would, you know, work that would get out there and, you know, uh, and, and 
we could get our message out and sell a few flower essences. Oh my goodness. The first couple orders we got, we were just over the moon, you know, Mm -hmm. and it turned out that it, it's a really viable model. And um, so he's still making essences and I'm, I make essences that he uses in his formula. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a terrific thing. And we have helped, Many, many thousands of cats, which just tickles me no de- no end. Oh, I can imagine. So if I have my math right, you guys started Little Big Cat, but then at that same, roughly a little bit after you started editing the AHVMA journal, yeah? Yes, yes. How did you manage both things at the same time? Well, like I said, I told Jackson he had to do the all the work. Ah. And so he did. He did. I I did most of the writing for mm-hmm. Little Big Cat. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but then um, then I started editing the journal and with uh, with Jan Bergeron, who I miss terribly to this day. Yeah. And we were kind of we were kind of the dynamic duo. We we were really good, and uh, it we enjoyed it a lot. Although. I'll tell you when you're the when you're the editor, you have to scrounge for material, mm-hmm. and we get a certain person who was high up in HVMA to write his articles on time. So it was like being the ringmaster at a three ring circus. Um, yeah. it was really hard work. Oh, I, really I can imagine. Work. Yeah. So who did you take? Who did yeah. you two take over for in the editor spot? Do you remember? Oh, I, I don't remember, because that was I think like two thousand and three. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, and it it was after I had had to quit because of my health. I couldn't mm. work, and um, and that you know the universe just provided. Yeah. I don't know what else to tell you, Neil, except the universe takes good care of me. Good. It really does, and and it my my whole life has been one miracle after another. I should not be here. You know, my life expectancy when I was born was 12 to 19 years Mm. because I had such a severe heart defect when I was born. Yeah. They did surgery when I was six. So, you know, so I lived past 19, but I never thought I'd make it to 30, let alone my 68th birthday was Thursday. So well, happy birthday. Thanks. But how how the heck did I last this long? You know, yeah. and and how have I been able to, you know, make it as an adult in this world? You know, that's really a kind of complicated thing to do. But the universe has always provided a job or a client or whatever. Um, you know, I I just trust my instinct and keep going. So how, how, what was your, your health must've been good to get into law enforcement then? Yes, I didn't. Yes. I didn't develop the heart failure until right before my 50th birthday. In fact, on Halloween, um, they did the repair on my heart when I was six, Mm -hmm. but there was always a residual murmur that nobody ever chased down. Yeah. Turned out to be a leaky mitral valve turned out to give me dilated cardiomyopathy, but it took a long time to develop. 
So my health was perfect for many, many, many years. You know, they, they had told me when I was about 14, they said, okay, everything looks good. Go have a nice life. And so I did, and I never gave it a second thought. And then yeah. suddenly I started having these weird flippity flops and, and symptoms. And, um, and I finally, when I realized that I was sleeping, sitting up and that I couldn't walk across the kitchen floor without stopping to breathe every three steps. And if I had seen those symptoms in a dog, I would have said, oh, hey, that's congestive heart failure. We're going to give you Lasix. We're going to give you Digoxin. So when I was diagnosed, they said, you have congestive heart failure. And I said to myself, I never panicked. I said to myself, I said, oh, dogs get that. They do fine. Yeah. And so yeah. I haven't let that stop me either. And medications have kept it very well managed for 18 years now. Did you, so, uh, uh, did you change your nutrition based on that? Oh, I changed a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Actually, when I learned about nutrition and I started feeding my cats raw meat, I was a vegetarian mm -hmm. and I was a vegetarian for many, many, many years, but it's, but then I had a, I went to an acupuncturist who said, girl, go get a steak. You are not the kind of person who can be a successful vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't been a very successful vegetarian. I hadn't felt all that great the whole time, you know, almost 20 years. Um, so the cats really taught me a lot about diet and and i actually had cleaned up my act quite a lot um with and jackson had been on the atkins diet so we went on the atkins diet and i lost weight and i felt better and i dropped my blood pressure meds and stuff because um atkins or keto or something the first thing it does your blood pressure goes down yeah and i had low blood pressure to start with so i really tanked with that and so, yeah, I had to, I had to learn a lot, but, you know, I've been in, interested in nutrition ever since Christina Chambro turned me on. And so I had already done a lot of cleanup work. Um, but now I take, you know, I take cardiotrophin and, and several things for standard process and, mm -hmm. you know, extra freeze and all that good stuff. And I'm, you know, I moved back up to the mountains a couple of years ago. And the reason I left the mountains was because the ambulance ride to the hospital was way too long for comfort. Yeah. So I moved six blocks away from a hospital and I lived there for 10 years. And then I, you know, I've been working on it. I felt better. I felt stronger. So I thought, well, I'm going back to the mountains. So here I am. Good for you. And, you know, it's hard work to live up here. You know, there's you know, chop wood, haul water kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, and and uh, I actually have had to haul water out of the creek when our little town plumbing system went down, and, you know, so, uh, and I do, you know, I, I have a wood stove and, and I do have to haul wood up from the wood pile and it's a hike, yeah. you know, so I, living up here keeps me in better shape. Good. Good. Did you have any trouble reconciling your philosophy going from uh, being a vegetarian to, to eating meat again? Well, yes, it, yes. And the problem, um, 
it was, yeah, it was a big problem, but my, I'm okay with it because A, if I'm dead, I can't help any animals. And B, if I'm sick, I can't help any animals. Yeah. So C, if I can eat as mindfully, as organically, pasture-raised, least cruel, um, you know, I do my best by the animals. And by doing so, I can help a lot more animals um, if I eat a few so I, you know, I wish I, I wish there was another way around it, but I really don't do well. Yeah, um, I'm a, I'm a blood type O. If you've heard of the blood type diets, but yeah, we're the hunter gatherers, and um, yeah. and it's really, it really turns out to be true. My metabolism just does not like, um, you know, vegetarianism or veganism or any of the things that I, I tried really hard, but it just you know, yeah, it still hurts hurts me in a lot of ways. But you know, vegetarianism isn't cruelty free either. That's um, correct. You, bet. you know, and it was actually Andrew Rowan, uh, who is the president or vice president of the Humane Society of the United States, uh, that said to me, "Well, you know, when you plow up the ground, you kill a lot of little animals, and mm-hmm. when you harvest the wheat." you kill a lot of little animals and, you know, there's, I'm, I'm learning about Buddhism and I'm trying to be ever more mindful about things. Although mosquitoes do not get a pass from me. That's, you know, I have to draw the line somewhere, but, you know, I, you know, the other day the spider was in the shower and I, made a little ramp for him to get out and you know <laughs> so i try and be as mindful and as um humane in my world as i possibly can um and i i wish i had i wish it were different but i really tried really really hard to make that work and it and it didn't i was really sick so yep um there we are that's we do the best we can, Neil. That's all we can do. I agree. I think your approach is reasonable. So what's next for you? Well, I'm working on a on a book, and I probably shouldn't say it because now I will I'll put, I'll, if I put it out to the universe, then I'll be forced to actually really work very hard on it. and uh, but it's it's about co-healing people and animals together. Wonderful. So I'm really excited about that. What's your writing? So many ideas. Good. Hey, so what's your writing routine like? Do you set aside a certain time every day or do you squeeze it in when you can? What what do you do? Well, since I'm not really, I'm retired, so I'm not really doing much else. And I get up and I go to the computer and I mess around, you know, and I usually listen to something uplifting for an hour or so while I play solitaire on, you know, cause I have to give my left brain something to do while mm-hmm. my right brain is absorbing new knowledge. Yeah. So that seems to work pretty well. And then, and then at, after that, then I am inspired to work on various things. Now I do still co- do consoles for a, a lot of different uh, companies and things. So, you know, 
paid work I do first, you mm-hmm. know, I guess, you know, um, by the time I write a book, it could be a long time before I see any return on it. And, you know, yeah. chances are, you know, there I've, I've got like a book on, on decline that I just give away for free because, you know, I just want the information out there and the articles that I write on my website, I just want the information out there, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm, you know, I'm not looking to be a best-selling author or anything, but I think it's important information. And, you know, from a being a veterinarian, I have a little different take on the process of healing and the modalities that you can use. And so what are the things you can use for both people and animals? And um, what difference does mindfulness make for your dog? You know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it's just, there's so much information out there and I've been synthesizing it for so long that, uh, you know, I think not that I am smarter than anybody or I know more, but I've noticed that when I'm learning stuff, I hear a given piece of knowledge, I can hear it better from this person than I can hear it from that person. Mm-hmm. So maybe I can help a bunch more, more people and animals doing it this way. So that's, that's my, that's my next big thing. And the other thing I really want to do is get a van and teach my cat to ride in it and just go drive around for, you know, as long as I'm able. (laughs) And I figure if I do that, I can also, you know, if, if I'm going to be in, um, you know, in Nova Scotia, I can, tell any of my readers in Nova Scotia, I'm going to be up there. Do you want to, you know, buy me dinner and I'll teach a class for you, for you and all your peeps, you know, or Seattle, or I've got friends everywhere. So, you know, I, I can teach face to face, which is important for me. It's, it's been hard during the pandemic and all to not actually talk to people that's you know it really is there really is no substitute for occasionally putting your hands on a dog or kissing a kitty on the head <laughs> um that's really that turns out to be really important for me so but i can do both and i can simplify and i can have a good time and i'm not sure that my cat is really all that excited about it but we're working on it good good well gene I think this is probably a good place to stop. Thanks so much for talking. Okay. Thanks so much for all your efforts for helping our, our medicine. And I hope you have continued health and success. Thanks. Good seeing you. All right. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.